Uh, we're going to get going, so... Oh, yes, here, Lena. Bye-bye. I'm the comedian, actually, so, yeah. Happy birthday, Anita. Happy birthday, Anita. You haven't said happy birthday to Anita now. It's a good time. Oh, it's nice to have you all here. The Brunswick Street, Sydney Road. Yeah, Sydney Road Festival's on today, for those of you who don't know. Who's going to that? Anyone going to that? Yeah, cool. How fun. Any good bands playing? Don't know. Probably. Imagine so. So we are in Lent, and uh, while people are finishing up the very last cups of tea, um, we'll just kind of describe a little bit about what we're doing. We are doing a series, and because we break all the rules, because we like pretty much James Dean, um, the series is going to go beyond Lent, because we started a little bit late, because we had some other stuff going on. So it's kind of, you know, in Lent, and then Lent Extra like extra for experts, for those of you who are extra good. Did anyone ever do, in New Zealand, we had like extra for experts at the end of like our work in school. And so if you were like really, really good and diligent, you could do like extra work and then like kind of just like smile smarmily at other people because you are superior to them until they took your lunch. Did anyone do their extra for experts sections? Beth Koch, what a surprise. Um... Never would have guessed. Um, So we're talking during Lent about the sacrifice of Jesus and the peace of God. Um, And the sacrifice of Jesus for some of us is a wonderful, um, comforting, um, joyous, thankful experience um, to think about. And for others of us, it's deeply troubling very, very traumatic and makes us wonder um, if we can love God after all. And so we're going to be talking about that range of emotions over um, this series. And uh, I explained on Facebook and via email to co-creators, but wouldn't have reached some of you, that this series is kind of going to hinge, it's kind of going to build on the weeks before. So if you want to keep up, kind of the only option that we've got um, is to kind of like podcast and kind of listen back because we're not going to be able to recap everything to like at, at great length. Otherwise, by the time we hit the end of the series, the recap takes longer than the entire service uh, and it's really, really difficult to say anything new. So we're just going to have to listen along. But this week, because, you know, I'm a kind of generous soul, I'm going to get a really, really brief recap of um, last week and why we're doing uh, this little series that we're doing and um, what we're going to try and answer or talk about. We don't really, we're not very good with answers, but we can talk about things. That's something we do well. Um, so the sacrifice of Jesus and the peace of God. So this um, uh, series is framed by those, that Fran- Franciscan uh, questions, those Fran- Franciscan questions of uh, who are you, God, and who am I? 
And we, I talked last week about a very personal experience of a sense of losing God somewhere in my early 20s, where uh, for the first time, really, I kind of had a rupture in my understanding of God, where God has always just been who God is and was very, very simple. Um, and then I had an experience which made understanding and knowing and loving God very, very difficult. And very briefly, you can listen to the full um, unabridged version, Reader's Digest, thank you, um, the full unabridged version, uh, if you want to listen to the podcast from last week. Uh, but basically, it goes something like this. I uh, was running a little youth group of kind of 12 churchy kids, and uh, our little youth group grew, and through a series of um, events, the neighborhood just started turning up to our little youth group, which was really nice. And so we went from 12 to uh, somewhere near 300 in a couple of years, which as a good young Pentecostal meant that I was the most successful and important person in the universe um, and was both shaking the planet and changing the world at the same time. You know, it's the least I could do. Um, And uh, we really were totally unprepared for um, our little youth group to be invaded by neighborhood rat bags. Um, The kind of air, we kind of lived in a reasonably white middle class area, but um, it bordered on like lots of much lower socioeconomic areas. And so suddenly we um, had encounters with these kids who um, had stuff going on in their lives that was much bigger than we'd ever kind of encountered before. And, and we just did the best we could and just loved them as best as we could and um, tried to spend time with them and be in their lives and just be, uh, I guess, some kind of presence um, of positive things. <laughs> and what happened is eventually they came, went from our kind of like life skills games program night into our churchy program night. And this is really exciting because for the first time, we kind of got to tell them about the good news of Jesus as we understood it. And uh, I remember quite distinctly um, describing to them the good news of Jesus that I had grown up with. Uh, and it went something like this. And this is a bit of a gross caricature. So for those of you who this story is very close to, um, I apologize. But this, is, this was my understanding of my reading. God loves us. God loves you kids very, very much. Um, but unfortunately, you're all terrible sinners. And because God is so good, he can't bear to be near you. So God is very good, and you are very bad. And your badness is so bad that God can't be close to you. Sin makes God so angry that even though he'd like to forgive us, he can't because we're broken divine laws. If someone, this is the catchphrase, if someone did the crime, then someone pays the time. That's just how laws work. Um, God can't just let us off. Someone has to pay. He'd really like to, but he can't. It's a divine law. It's the way the maths works. So someone's got to bleed or you'll be tortured forever. That's just what God's love is like. It's about here in this describing story that I began to look at the faces of these young children that I really, really deeply loved. So many of them um, victims of horrific life circumstances. Um, Before I moved on to the next bit of describing, fortunately, the good news is that if someone innocent and perfect dies, it will cancel all of our sins. And as I looked at these kids, um, having just condemned, <laughs> condemned them to hell um, and told them that, um, that you know, God loved them, but he couldn't forgive them without, without a victim, without someone innocent dying, um, I was confronted with the reality of telling people who were victims um, 
about the way the divine maths worked, that a victim needed to die. And then I began to think about the, the, the kind of justice system that existed where someone could commit a crime and then someone else could step in and take the punishment and that made it okay. Uh, the example I used last week is if I w- ran up and punched Cat in the face who promised to kick me in the balls back. Um, but that aside, <laughs> Cat's justice aside, if I punched Cat in the face and then Warwick said, I'll take the punishment for that, um, that that would somehow let me off. just seemed like really, really weird maths to me. How is it fair that an innocent person takes the rap? Did Jesus really have to be tortured, whipped, beaten, cruelly left to die on a cross to make a maths equation work so that God could forgive us? The system where an innocent victim had to die seemed like such a slap in the face when sharing that message with innocent kids who themselves were victims of so much. For me, I'd always thought about God being on the side of the victims, but this understanding of the good news put God on the other side of the ledger, seemingly against his will. It left me feeling totally dislocated from God. I didn't, know, I didn't want to know a God like this, but it was all I was left with. So I had this conflict between the God I believed things about and the God that I loved. The God um, that had been described to me and then the God that I felt that I knew. And I began asking this question of who is God and who am I? So that's a brief recap. So today we're going to carry on talking about Jesus' death and suggest a way of understanding it that makes more sense of it and lines up with the kind of person Jesus is described as in Scripture. It's not the only way of understanding this. You may get to the end of the series and totally disagree um, with what we have to say about that, and that's totally okay. Um, We're just going to describe a way that we've made peace with the good news of the gospel. You may have heard. the saying, Jesus is the answer. Uh, I've even got it up here. Oh, wait. Oh, da um, But the follow-up question should be, but what is the question? Um, and to look at what the question is, we're going to do some digging into the world that Scripture initially spoken to and begin with the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. Um. If Jesus is the answer, what's the question? Why did we need Jesus, and what problem did his death solve? In the broader sense, the easy answer to that is sin. But if it just took his death to solve sin, why did he die a death at the hands of the Romans, handed over by his people's temple authorities, tortured, whipped, beaten, made to carry a cross, then hung on it while being spit at and taunted? Is there something in that? Why that specific death? If Jesus needed to die for our sins, why not? Why didn't he die in his sleep at a ripe old age after having a nice warm Milo? Would that not solve the maths equation? An innocent man dies for the sins of the world? Why this whole extravagant drama of being handed over by his people to a government? that was foreign to the land, whipped and beaten and hung, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus said he came to bring peace. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So how does the world give peace? 
I'd contend that the pattern of peacemaking in the world has always been violence. So today we're going to look at uh, um, the work of a man called René Girard. Um, he's a Frenchie. He's a good Frenchie. He invented the French fry. No, he didn't. Um, but that'd be, but that'd be great. Or the freedom fry, um, post nine eleven America. Um, he's a French anthropologist, and this is uh, this is what it looks like. Thanks, Ben. Um, he's a French anthro- anthropologist who who worked last century, um, and came to huge academic acclaim. He's now in the someone will be able to name it for me, but the, there's this kind of like institute of the top forty um, French um, intellectuals, and um, he got. Um, brought into that. So he, he came um, into huge academic acclaim um, and then was very quickly turned on when he suggested that maybe the Bible had something good to say about the world. Um, but he's an anthropologist. So an anthropologist is someone who studies kind of human history and human behavior. And Amy Beretta is the only person today who's not allowed to ask any questions because she knows more about anthro- anthropology than me. Um, but his work um, studied people and cultures over centuries and centuries and centuries and found a common thread through nearly every ancient culture. And that common thread was ritual sacrifice. So what got him asking, ritual sacrifice, why does nearly every culture on earth sacrifice things? What is that all about? He concluded, because it makes peace. And how he explained it is this. There's a theory within anthropology and psychology called mimetic desire. Um, Who loves mimes? Does anyone love mimes? Okay. Um, has anyone played that like mime game where you're like, you do one thing and then the other person tries to copy it? It's not very easy or fun, but you know, um, doesn't require money. So you know, <laughs> feel free to play in the park this afternoon. Um, mimetic desire um, is about mimicking. It's about copying. And um, the way anthropology um, understands human cultures to have developed is this, is that, is that we are hardwired to copy each other. So the basic understanding goes like this. Um, we, cultures grow and develop. Um, so let's start with languages. The reason... Um, we can communicate is because we develop a common language. If I, um, let's go way back in time, to cavemen times, and you've got one, uh, one person speaking one language and another speaking, person speaking another and another person speaking another language, and there's no overlap of languages, then it's really, really hard to communicate. So what we end up doing is we end up mimicking each other and creating some kind of common understanding and some kind of common agreement about how we're going to communicate. But then there's also all the stuff in the world and the stuff that we require to survive, like water and like food um, and like shelter and like clothing um, and family structures and things like this. And we all need these things. Um, and so what happens is that we learn off each other that drinking water and eating food and preparing it this way and doing this and doing that, um, that by doing things in the same way and wanting the same things helps for our mutual survival. So we survive by copying each other. Mimetic desire is wanting the same things because we all learn together about what it is we need to want. And so at a very basic primal level, that makes lots and lots of sense, doesn't it? That it's helpful if we, um, we live in a similar pattern of being. It's helpful if we all work on the same goals. It's helpful if, we, um, if uh, one person works out that water's good for us, then we all um, go for that water source and someone else tries a pond 
um, which is poisonous and then dies, and then another person tries upon that's poisonous and they die, and then we go, oh, let's learn from that. Um, let's not copy that person, and let's drink from the good water source as well. So this is how cultures and human activity um, grow through copying and learning off each other. And then the longer that goes on, that becomes hardwired in our brain. So some strange things happen um, with that, is that we're hardwired to want what someone else wants. So if someone else has something or desires something, then the hardwiring in our brain tells us that if they see something good in it, it must be good. There's something in there um, that we should want it as well. And so slowly we begin to develop this kind of these clashes because we all want the same things. And um, I've got a little video to explain how um, mimetic desire works. And we will have, you will have all seen this kind of thing um, in children. So here's kids playing out mimetic desire. This is a, a small interlude for you to catch your breath. Here we go. Important to have full screen. Get the full effect. Back to the start. Good. Excellent. We've got audio. Share. Okay, so, so um, how many how many dummies were there? Two. There were two dummies. For those of you who fell asleep for the start, there were two dummies. There was one dummy which had a really cool cloth hanging off it. Great, um, and that was a good dummy. And um, that one baby had that dummy. Then the mum or dad inserted a hand and said, "Here's another dummy into the system." What did baby who had first dummy do? drop that dummy and go for the other dummy. That dummy was suddenly better because the other baby had the dummy. And if that baby has that dummy and is really enjoying it, it must know something about that dummy that I don't. So I'm going to drop that. Who cares about that dummy now? I'm going to go and snatch that one because you have got it. That's mimetic desire. So what mimetic desire um, brings about in cultures, while it brings about lots of good things, it brings about some negative side effects as well, such as the fact that there's a suddenly there's a scarcity of resources. And even when there's an abundance of resources, we still want the thing that we can't have. We want the thing that the other person's got. Dummy number two suddenly became the idol because dummy number two was possessed by someone else and therefore we had to get it. And this is how we normally resolve issues of mimetic desire. Number two. Once again, short interlude for you to catch your breath after being blown away by that mind-blowing video. Oh, 
going to overdub this. Let's Has anyone seen this play out in real life? It's, ama- it's amazing. Toys everywhere. One toy becomes the object of desire. So mimetic desire creates scarcity because we all want the same things. We want, all want the best land, the best water, the best, uh, most beautiful women. We want the best cattle. We want all of these things together. Um, and yes, I did put those two things together to describe an ancient <laughs> way of life. Um, we, we, we suddenly there's scarcity because we can't all have all that stuff all the time. And that scarcity is heightened dur- during times of great trial. And so the way we've always solved this is exactly by that. What's the best way to solve violence? How's the only surefire way to make, sorry, to solve scarcity? How's the only surefire way to get what you want? The answer is always violence. Because if I am stronger than you and I take the thing off you that I want and you can't get it back, then I have it. And if you try and get it back and you're a threat to me, but I can eliminate you, then suddenly we've got enough stuff to go around because it's all mine. And so human cultures have always solved issues of scarcity by violence. It's a simple and very effective solution. The problem with it, and let's just think, economically about this. The problem with it is if you're trying to grow and develop a culture and you're trying to grow and develop a people, you realize that you need each other. We need more than one of us to survive. So if we keep on destroying each other, actually, even from a very selfish point of view, it's not very cost effective. Um, In a tribal context, if you, let's say you have a little village of 50 people, say um, seven or eight families, or it's probably more like five families because of the family sizes back then. So you've got a village of five families, um, and every time something gets taken from someone else, there's complete um, bloody warfare, and that fam- um, half of the people kill the other half. That tribe then is suddenly incredibly weak, and another tribe who lives next door could come and take them over. So violence is really effective for solving the initial problem, but creates a bigger problem in that it leaves you weak. So when there's tension among us, when violence is brewing, we need a way to vent it. So we've already got ingrained in our psyche that violence solves issues of scarcity, that the only way we can make peace is by violence. But we also now understand that the issue with violence is it leaves us weak. So how, how do we use violence still to solve the issues between us, but without weakening, weakening us overall? So let's take an experience of lots of ancient people. Boop, 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 boop. Not that one. They're not ancient. They've got fancy shoes. Try the next one. Ben, can you bring up the drought picture? The drought picture? Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, let's take a drought experience. So there's this tribe living in the desert. Um, they've got wells. They're semi-established. Um, there's been no rain in m- months, and the wells are drying up. 
All of these families are gathered around the same water source. Cattle feed is scarce. Um, and arguments begin to break out about how much water each family is taking. Some people say that the Joneses are taking too much. And so they begin having arguments at the well as to how much they're taking. Other people say that it's actually the Macintoshes that are taking too much. And someone saw them sneak in the middle of the night and get extra water and then try and like water the grass with it rather than just drinking it, which is uh, not very cost-effective. Cattle feed is scarce, and suddenly a lamb goes missing. And the owner is sure that one of the rival families took the lamb. In fact, they heard some rustling outside their door that night. And so the village begins to gather in the um, center and begins to argue about these things. And it looks like war is about to break out. (laughs) That's what it looks like, exactly like that. That's actually a a very old photo. Um, It looks like war is about to break out. There's all this tension. There's all this violence. Times are tough. People are thirsty. There's only so much water. Until someone says, a wise person says, but why is there a drought in the first place? Why are we fighting over water? What we need to find out is why is there a drought? What happened? And then they point out, did you know that we did not have this drought before the Joneses family had that weird kid with the birthmark? Everyone goes, wow. You're right. There was no drought before that weird kid with the birthmark was born. What can we conclude from this? The kid with the birthmark caused the drought. He's made the gods angry. And so a murmuring goes through, and suddenly these two sides standing against each other merge back together and then filter out. And is the family standing in the middle with the weird kid with the birthmark. The drought causer, they're calling him. If the kid with the birthmark has made the gods of rain angry, what are we going to do about this? Kill it, someone suggests. Yeah, kill it, kill it, kill it, kill it. The child with the birthmark is stoned. Violence has been committed. Everyone has killed the enemy. And peace reigns. Everyone forgets about the violence that they'd plotted for each other. Violence has been committed. And now they can wait out the effects of the curse to pass. And so they work it out between themselves while they wait for that curse to pass. How do you make violence cost-effective? Kill something cheap. Rather than whole-scale, whole-village warfare, if we can vent our violence and rage on one, one thing, something cheap, then we get that little endorphin kick. We're kind of a hard wiring within us that says that violence causes peace. We've ticked that box, and it didn't cost us that much. The blame can't, we can't afford for the blame to be the fault of everyone It has to be an outsider, a minority, an other. And we need reasons not to kill each other, so we come up with new ones. Witches 
in medieval times, causing the plague. This is way harder than it looks. Ben, can you just bring up all three pictures? Thank you. Witches in medieval times. Jews in Germany. Classic, classic example. Germany, pre-World War II, struggling with massive economic difficulties after the Treaty of Versailles, having to pay huge recompense for the war. Um, can't make military uh, weapons because of the Treaty of Versailles. Huge tension within them. Then someone suggests, why, what's creating all this economic crisis? Not the fact that we started a war, no. Who's doing well w- among us? Who doesn't belong here? Who's causing all of this? The Jews. The Jews have got all the gold. The Jews have got all the diamonds. Look at what it's doing to us. It's destroying our economy. So rather than Germany breaking out into a civil war, what happens? All the fury, all the rage gets vented on the Jews. UK councillor blames storms and floods on gay marriage. This happens all the time. Scapegoating. If we can vent our violence on something cheap, it creates peace. And it's stuck around for all this time because it works. It's incredibly, incredibly effective. Scapegoating works. It's economic sense. Caiaphas's verse. Surely it's worth one man dying to save a whole nation. That logic makes so much sense. And it works on a much larger scale too. The Pax Romana, Rome, Sacrificing villages left, right, and center, taking over the world to bring peace. These barbarians don't know how to live. We can teach them to live, and some of them might die in the process, but it's going to be worth it because it will bring peace. Works on a much smaller scale, too. I don't know if you've been involved in a friendship circle where there's someone incredibly aggressive and bullying in the friendship circle, and you're always worried they're going to turn on you. Then something good happens. They turn on one of your friends, and you go along with it. You go along with their grievance with your friend, and maybe even exaggerate their grievance with your friend and how bad that person is, because at least it's not you. I'm sure none of you have ever done this. But it's scapegoating. But to really make scapegoating work, and this is what the ancients have taught us, <laughs> to really make scapegoating work, it needs to be magic. The key is to hide the mechanism. We can't admit why scapegoating works because we'll realize that it's not fair, so we need to hide it. How is the best way to hide something? Magic. Or religion. What if this is actually a magical law? What if it's actually ingrained in the way that the universe works, that sacrifice is necessary? What if the gods are angry with us because we haven't given them 
the right stuff. If sacrifice makes a God happy, then what we need to do is get ahead and make it put into a schedule so that we never forget. So sacrifice became ritualized. Sacrifices became part of the yearly cycle, symbolizing the violence and entrenching it in a culture. Why wait until a specific thing happens, until a bad thing happens? If the gods need placating, let's stay ahead of the curve. And so you end up with this. Oh, there we go. He's got it already. That's a, uh, again, a photo um, before it's time, magic, um, of, um, of, of Moloch, who is an ancient um, Canaanite god who was worshipped by many, many civilizations around the time of Israel and even Israel. And that um, is offering a baby. There's a fire between Moloch's legs. Um, no innuendo intended. And um, they it heats up the arms of that um, of, of the statue. And a baby is offered into that fire, human sacrifice. And that sacrifice brings peace. And what they used to do is they used to do um, tribal drumming and get into trances and dance around the sacrifice and get into an altered state so that when their parents hand over the baby and it is sacrificed, um, that you're kind of not really aware. It all just becomes part of the magic. You're in a trance. So ritual practice Oh, that font didn't work out very well. Ritual practice reinforces communal practice. So built into our culture and our religion is this idea that sacrifice works. And so it gets repeated over and over and over again and built into our psyche and reinforced in our psyche. And then that reinforces the fact that when real trouble comes, like the economic situation in Germany, like natural disasters in America, like the plague in medieval times. The ritual practice reinforces our communal practice where we too say, surely it's better for a few to die than chaos be everywhere. We make it magic by putting it in religion. The scapegoat became magic. And in all ancient mythology, one thing was absolutely essential. This is what Gerard's claim, big claim is. In all ancient mythology, one thing was absolutely essential, that the scapegoat was perceived as evil and had no voice. That you have to hide. You have to hide the innocent innocence of the scapegoat. The scapegoat has to take evil upon itself to justify why it can be killed and why it becomes magic and why it brings peace. Oedipus, king of Thebes, realizes later that he killed his parents and then is put to death and then is resurrected to become the king. So, Gerard proposes, what has been hidden since the beginning of the world the fact that we solved community or communal violence through scapegoating and that we don't want to recognize it because it works. Scapegoating brings peace.
some of you astute ones have already begun to ask the next question. Doesn't the Bible have sacrifice in it? (laughs) Doesn't God demand this? Isn't Jesus described as a sacrifice? What do we do with that? And they're all really, really good questions that I'm going to make Rod try and unpack next week. (laughs) A good place to start, however, and something I'll give you to think about this week, is that the Bible didn't invent sacrifice. You hear lots of modern claims kind of about the Bible. And one of them is kind of like to look at the Bible as if The Bible was written totally separate to ancient culture and just came out of nowhere. And that everything that is described in the Bible, that the Bible made up and made happen. Not exactly true. (laughs) Moloch was around a long time before Yahweh. Sacrifice. Sacrifice was going on at least seven days if you're a literal creationist, before um, Israel showed up. (laughs) Thousands and thousands of years. Hundreds of thousands of years. Before Israel showed up, sacrifice was happening and was working and was making peace. And into the strange and murky land stepped Yahweh. And what happened to sacrifice? Well, those are questions that we're going to unpack over the next few weeks. Who am I? Who is God and who am I? Who is God? Is it possible that he could be bigger than sacrifice? Or is he bound by these divine laws put into the fabric of the universe? Who am I? We've learned one thing about ourselves this morning is that we all have scapegoating tendencies. (laughs) And before you get too personal about it um, and take the blame all upon yourself as you were taught in Sunday school, think about the systemic nature of that, that you're a part of a culture and you have hardwired into your brain things that have been going on for a long, 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 long time. That all of us, without thinking, scapegoat. Then all of us, (laughs) often with thinking, scapegoat. Can anything rupture the cycle? I believe that Jesus can. How, we'll talk about in the next few weeks. Let's close in prayer. Loving God, Who are you? Are you petty? Are you kind? Are you bound by what we call divine laws? Did your wrath (laughs) demand that your son was hung on a cross? How do you bring peace? Loving God, 
we believe you are loving, but somehow find it hard to work out how. Be with us. Teach us. Be kind to us in this process. Let us know you, know who you are. In your loving name, amen. <laughs>